0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, concern about a coronavirus second wave spooking investors and driving business. Honeywell has been producing PPE throughout the pandemic. Now they're partnering with SAP for cloud-driven solutions to whatever's next. CEO Darius Adamchik.
1: The big unknown here: what's really going to happen in the fall? Now we're optimistic. I think we're much more ready to deal with a potentially a second outbreak.
0: Southern Bank Corps CEO, Darren Williams, on the road to a lasting U.S. recovery from coronavirus and from centuries of systemic racism.
2: Everyone's got to look at, look at their own company, their own industries, and in and, and the banking industry, for example, you know, redlining was outlawed, outlawed in 1968, but even today, People of color have much harder time accessing mortgage loans.
0: And three years after Me Too, journalist Joanne Littman says not a lot has changed. As executives respond to the Black Lives Matter movement now, they do well to learn from their Me Too mistakes.
3: If we want to avoid those same missteps now, we've really got to put words into
0: action. Those stories and more. It's Thursday, June 11th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now.
4: Good morning everybody, welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've seen a lot of big up days for the market recently. The last two sessions for the market closed down and this morning we are looking at even bigger losses. After we heard from the Federal Reserve yesterday that they're going to be keeping rates at zero for a very long time to come, we knew that part of it. They also gave their economic forecast and that may have been a little worse than some people had anticipated. They're looking for a decline of 6.5% in GDP for 2020. They do expect gains of 5% in 2021 and then 3.5% in 2022. Uh, but the reality of why they're going to be keeping rates low maybe catching up with the market. Also, some concerns about what's happening with reopenings and some potential increases or increases in cases for coronavirus in some of the states that have opened early. Andrew.
5: OK, thanks, Becky. Uh, the Fed seeing rates near zero through uh, 2022 at that news conference yesterday. Chairman Jay Powell used phrases like, quote, considerable risks and said that uh, we will, quote, do whatever we can for as long as it takes to support the economy. And the professor joins us this morning, Steve Wiesman, uh, with more on all of it and how to read
6: it, Steve. How to read it. Yeah, I think, Andrew, the, the way to read it is the Fed throwing a little bit of cold water on the market's uh, exuberance over the outlook. Uh, look, they he gave them everything they could have possibly wanted when it comes to the outlook for rates. But it's the outlook for the economy that was really the cold water on the market uh yesterday becky was just talking about these numbers the gdp outlook it was going to be two percent three percent whatever it was going to be now it's going to be down six and a half this year up five in other words above trend the next two years but you have to do the math on that you don't get back where you were until the middle of 22 in terms of getting back lost gdp Unemployment rate remains elevated throughout the three-year projection phase there, so we don't get back to three and a half at any kind of hurry. It takes a while to get there. Now, I asked Powell yesterday about the good news, about the idea that the, the, the job uh, report was better than expected, and asked him how he would process that, and here's what he said. We're not thinking about raising rates. We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So what we're thinking about is, is providing support for this economy. We do
5: think this is going to take some time.
6: And the reason for that is you have to take the ice cream you're getting with the idea that, hey, there's going to be something bad down the road here, which is why you're getting all that ice cream. And, and, and that is really because he does not see the labor market improving that quickly.
5: My assumption is that there will be a significant chunk, chunk well into the millions. Uh, I, I don't want to give you a number because it's going to be I guess, but well, well into the millions of people who who don't get to go back to their old job. And in fact, there isn't a um, there may not be a job in that industry
6: for them for some time. Andrew, uh, Powell has always emphasized the uncertainty of outcomes. I feel like the change here among Powell and maybe other members of the Fed is they're now more certain of difficult outcomes than they were in the past. The idea that no matter what happens here, It's going to be a long road to recovery.
0: The reopening of states across the U.S. from the economic shutdown designed to slow the spread of the coronavirus has led to some new hotspots of infection. New cases and hospitalizations from COVID are accelerating in at least 11 states, many of them across the southern U.S., Texas has reported three consecutive days of record-breaking COVID-19 hospitalizations, and new confirmed cases and test-positive rates in Arizona are increasing. So as parts of the U.S. push deeper into reopening, keeping safe people returning to work and making sure surges don't turn into outbreaks is a key priority for business leaders. Honeywell, the software industrial conglomerate, is one of a number of corporations stepping up in the pandemic to produce personal protective equipment. CEO Darius Adamczyk welcomed President Trump on a tour of a Honeywell facility
1: last month in Phoenix. President of the United States, Donald Trump.
5: Thank you very much, everybody. It's a great company, and it's an honor to be with you. And uh, We traveled with Darius. He's a great chief executive. He's He's a great businessman. Done a tremendous job with your company. But I'm thrilled to be here. In the fantastic state of Arizona, I love Arizona, moments ago we saw the brand new production lines where you're making high quality N95 respirators and they are made to perfection.
0: In addition to manufacturing, Honeywell is turning to high-tech innovations to control safety environments in whatever is the new normal. Here's Becky with Honeywell's CEO.
4: Darius, you've got a big announcement to share this morning about a partnership with one of the top players in the cloud and and something you are working on again to try and stop the spread of coronavirus. Why don't you tell us about that?
1: Uh, good morning, Becky. Nice to see you again. Nice to be with you. Um, yeah, today is a very exciting day for us. We're going to be announcing a partnership with SAP. It's a natural partnership with their expertise in the ERP space and the IT space and our expertise in the ot space it's uh it's kind of a natural marriage and natural partnership and the focus uh, is going to be a cloud-based solutions based on our forge platform and their sap platform for con- our connected buildings offering we think that this is an exciting day for Building owners, building operators, as we're going to be bringing substantial energy savings, we're going to be bringing a better occupant experience. And I think what's really most important, especially in these times, is we're going to be bringing employees back to a much safer environment. You know, initially when the COVID crisis hit, we responded very quickly and effectively. To make sure that we bring the solutions that were needed whether it's n95 masks or sensors for ventilators or hand sanitizers where we convert it to two of our plants to make hand sanitizer what we're focusing our energy on now is how does the world operate in this quasi state between a full medical solution and then fully working from home and part of that solution is going to be our healthier buildings offering which is going to offer improved um, air circulation, cleaner air through the use of UV lights. Some of our AI technologies are going to make sure that people are social distancing. Some of our rebellion ca- cameras not only will measure temperatures on on people entering the building, but even through the use of AI, make sure that they're actually wearing PP&E in a proper way. So we think that this is going to be a great solution for people to transition back to the offices
4: darius i mean that's that's huge and i think it would make people feel much more comfortable if they knew they could come into these environments because so much of what we've heard to this point is that inside air circulation could be a serious problem we've watched it uh, in in, in diagrams where you can see for instance at a restaurant or at a church or something where they map out how close you're sitting to people and how many people on this floor of the office actually got it after one person came down with coronavirus Um, what you're talking about sounds pretty intense how quickly can you roll some of these things out? How, how quickly would you be able to scale this up? I know that you have a huge presence when it comes to these uh, non-residential buildings, over 25% of the world's non-residential buildings. Um, are actually powered by Honeywell. So how, how quickly could you roll out solutions like this?
1: Uh, we're, we're ready to engage customers right now. These solutions are ready. They're ready to go. You know, we're starting to roll them out in some of the Honeywell buildings. So we're, we're certainly ready to go right now to engage customers in some of those discussions. And I, and I would just also point out that our solutions are not just limited to buildings. For example, we've also created a set of solutions for the airlines. I've happened to have some discussions with the airline CEOs, a number of them earlier this week, but how do we make travel safer for passengers? And we had some ideas, they have a number of ideas, but we're all focused on the same thing, which is how do we make that environment safer? And the same kinds of things, which is healthier air circulation, making sure that the cabin is uh, clean, that it's been disinfected, that that passengers at the end of the day need to feel safer in their travel. So we have a similar set of solutions there. We have them for industrial plant, cybersecurity, all these things that are going to become so relevant now as the world gets back to work.
4: You say you have these solutions that are ready to roll out right now. A couple of questions. What's it cost? And how, as a as an employee going into a building, as a, an air traveler, how would I know those things are in there? Because everybody is kind of ramping up with these partnerships right now. We heard that AMC theaters are teaming up with Clorox to try and make people feel better about the idea that they're cleaning things more thoroughly. What you're talking about makes me feel a little more comfortable in terms of the ultraviolet rays in, in the in the duct systems and trying to make sure that people actually are social distancing. But what does it cost and when are we actually going to see, let's say, Manhattan having all of this, or know that any flight that I would book would actually have something like
1: that? Yeah, you know, the, the costs are actually variable based on the size of the building, number of occupants and so on. So, but the way that you're going to know that these systems are in place for example for our uh, building offerings every office occupant is going to have a user app where they could look up exactly what's happening you know on a daily basis they're going to get a questionnaire in terms of who they've been around what what they've done so we're you know incorporating another safety feature into this they can look up at uh, the air quality they can take a look at you know who's been Around them in case there is somebody who comes down positive tested for COVID. So it's a fairly sophisticated user application as well that will further enable employees to feel safer in that environment. So it's going to be it's going to be very visible to anybody coming in, particularly also if they use some of our Rebellion cameras, which will measure temperature as well as check for PPE or whatever other functionality that the given user would want to have in that uh, in that building.
4: I would imagine in China they may roll some of that stuff out immediately, but maybe in the United States there are some questions about privacy. And I ask that because even when we were in the heat of the virus in New York City and other places, privacy concerns are a big issue, particularly with talking about people's health. And there were times where you're not even told in your own workplace if someone tests positive or who that person is. You know, maybe you hear that there was a positive case in the workplace, but you don't know who it is because of privacy concerns and health concerns. How, how do you deal with those issues?
1: Yeah, no, I, no, I think that's a that's a very legitimate point. Privacy issues uh, and something we have to deal with. You know, we've you know we've actually managed the whole COVID crisis very well. We've had very very few outbreaks throughout our hundred and ten thousand employees. You know, but we've had a couple, and frankly, you can still manage this without telling people exactly. Who's uh, been tested positive for the virus? You have to take a look at where that person works, who they've been around, and so on. And I think you can do that in a way which still protects people's privacy without divulging, you know, who's been tested positive and so on. And you know, that's part of the solution as well as keeping those uh, the people's privacy such that it's not evident to everybody in the office or the manufacturing center exactly who it is and, and what they've tested for. Because those those issues are critical and important.
4: Darius, what what does the economy look like from your perspective? What do you see happening around the globe as places like China and Europe start to open up and as some of the states here um, start to open, too?
1: Yeah, I I would say so far it's very consistent with what we've expected. I mean, essentially, what we expected and continue to see in the results is a little bit of a steady progression. So, you know, I would define April as our low point. May was a little bit better. We expect June to be better. Q3 to be better, Q4 to be better, and then 20, 2000, uh, 2021 to be better. Um, that's the basic financial model, and whether it's a, our aerospace business, whether it's our performance material business, it's starting to follow similar types of trends. Now, the big unknown here, and Dr. Gottlieb talked about this um, you know, when he's on your show, which is you know, what's really going to happen in the fall. Now, we're, we're optimistic. I think we're much more ready to deal with potentially a second outbreak. Uh, The mortality rates are dropping, so the treatments that are being administered in the hospitals are much more effective. We do think that progress is going to be be made in terms of a medical solution, uh, even in the fall or or late this year. So we, we think that the chances of another major event when everybody gets sent back to their homes, the is locked up, the probability of that we anticipate to be pretty low. So we see some level of recovery. We, we're not expecting a V-shaped recovery, but we're, we are expecting a gradual improvement as we move throughout the year and certainly into 2021.
4: Darius, we wanna thank you very much for your time today. I wish we had more time to, to speak with you, but hopefully you can come back soon. Tell us how things are progressing, and we appreciate hearing this update about this new news today, too.
1: Thank you, Becky.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, the U.S. road to economic recovery. Why the journey and the job security might be bumpier than we realize.
2: If consumer confidence doesn't come back and, and people don't res- return to the stores to buy and purchasing, uh, many of these businesses may not need as many of the people as they have now.
0: The CEO of regional banks, Southern Bancorp, right after this This is Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew.
5: Well, right now, I want to get a broader look at the banking sector and progress on reopening the economy. Joining us right now is Darren Williams. He's the CEO of Southern Bank Corp, which has uh, provided more than 1,200 paycheck protection loans to rural, low- and middle-income communities. Darren, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, there's so much to talk about uh, I want to go, though, straight to the news this morning, uh, given the sell offs in the market and um, really the expectations of the Fed uh, for the next 12 months, if not longer. What are you seeing as the CEO of, of, of one of the largest banks in your region?
2: Well, we see a, a, a community or our, our business community that's really uh, still a little, little concerned, um, you know, if we can open. Uh, reopen the economy, uh, given this pandemic. If, if consumers have confidence, then we think, um, our, our borrowers, our customers will be, will be fine. Um, we provided uh, various forms of payment relief during this, uh, uncertain times. Uh, so we're, we're optimistic, cautiously optimistic, but if, if we can, uh, regain consumer confidence, if, 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 the, if the communities, the, market, the markets we start can open back up safely, uh, then I think we'll be in good shape.
5: Um, you heard what Jay Powell had to say yesterday in terms of their expectations for what employment looks like in this country, in turn, in, in, over the next twelve months. What's your expectation for employment in your region?
2: Well, understand, we serve the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta, so, and this is a, a one of the most persistently poor communities of all the United States. And so, when uh, other markets were flourishing, we're thriving much better than we are. Uh, so we we've always had a low unemployment, uh, and so we're obviously concerned about that. Uh, that's a, that's an issue for us. Uh, so we're going to continue to monitor that, continue to watch that. Uh, but we want to do all we can to support the small businesses that provide the jobs uh, in the markets that we serve.
5: Well, let me ask you about that specifically, whether we need more stimulus money, whether we need to get more money to small businesses. What's, what's your view on that?
2: Yeah, I think so. So, um, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program was, was, was a big help for the markets that we serve. Many of our business owners said it was a lifeline. It allowed them to keep their uh, employees working. Uh, we provided over almost you know, 1,100 and 1,250 paycheck protection loans for over $111 million, uh, and that was very much needed. But the paycheck protection program was very limited in how those dollars could be spent. Most of that had to be spent on payroll, but other things that businesses need to support uh, themselves to, to allow them to survive this pandemic. So uh, there may be a need for additional um, additional support for small businesses that are really the backbone of this kind of, that really are, who are creating jobs. And until the until consumer confidence comes back, until we uh, are, feel safe about going back into the market, going back into restaurants, going back into stores, uh, these businesses probably will need additional support. Uh,
5: there are some economists that are worried about what, it, what happens to employment uh, come the end of this month, given that uh, some of these loans uh, and the provisions around employment, you were just discussing how you think these loans are being used. Do you think there are people that are being kept on the payroll that may not be on the payroll come July?
2: It's quite possible. Uh, again, if, if consumer confidence doesn't come back and, and people don't re- return to the stores to buy and to purchasing, uh, many of these businesses may not need as many of the people uh, as they have now. And so sure, we're concerned about that. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program really required, initially it's 75%, now that's been reduced about 6%, those dollars had to be spent on keeping people on the payroll. Uh, that, was a, that was a primary driver for that money. And so, there are people who may be on the payroll where businesses may not need them right now. So that is a concern.
5: What's loan growth look like for you guys right now?
2: Well, I must say loan growth has been it's not nearly as as, as, uh, as high as we would have expected. But, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, we are seeing loan growth. We have a pretty diverse loan portfolio. Uh, we operate in some pretty rural markets. So we uh, we serve uh, folks in the agriculture industry. So our farmers are still planting. Uh, and so we, we have some loan growth. But the vast majority of our home growth, unfortunately, has been through the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, so loan growth, while it slowed, uh, it's slowed, not, it's not completely diminished. Uh, but we would, we would love to see it uh, increase even more.
5: And what do you see in, in terms of delinquencies?
2: You know, again, we provided uh, as much relief as we could both to our consumer and to our uh, business borrowers. Uh, and so we provided a 90-day payment holiday for any consumer for any reason without any fees. Uh, and on a case-by-case basis, we work with our, um, our, our our business borrowers to provide them relief. So right now, uh, we're not seeing delinquencies because we've given people as much as 90 days uh, payment relief or interest-only payments. Uh, we are watching very closely, analyzing very closely. Right now, our asset quality remains strong. But, you know, we'll see that in the third, fourth, uh, first, second quarter of next year. So we're going to continue to monitor that. Uh, so far, so good, but we're caut- cautiously optimistic.
5: Do you see a disconnect between the market right now and the economy as you're seeing it as a CEO? Well,
2: there is there's a disconnect. Think of the markets we serve. We serve, you know, again, some of the most specifically poor communities of all the United States, uh, in the Arkansas, Mississippi, Delta, uh, very, very low-income markets. Uh, and so there, there, there appears to be some disconnect. Uh, but, again, our, our markets, our communities are resilient. Uh, we believe that we can bounce back. and We to do all we can to support our bars and our customers through, through this, through this uh, economic crisis.
5: Darren, let me ask you this. You know, the, the country, as you know so very well, is reeling um, uh, after the murder uh, that took place now two weeks ago. And, and, and we've been having some uh, really, I hope, important and powerful conversations on, the, on this network and elsewhere about what needs to happen in this country uh, to change the dynamic, uh, to, to really end the systemic racism. And, and you guys are doing a lot where you are uh, to try to get money into people's hands and, and trying to figure out what the private sector can do. What do you think can be done immediately?
2: Well, immediately, we've got a team that has these difficult conversations. I am I'm pleased to see uh, that so many people are speaking out, uh, speaking against the type of injustice that we've seen that people of color have, have known for some time now. I'm glad that people are becoming woke. They're understanding what's happening and they're speaking out against it. But speaking out is not enough. We must act, we must take action. Every industry must look at itself. Every company, when that industry look at itself and see what's been their role uh, in the systematic, and structural racism that's called, uh, that's caused the problems that we're seeing throughout, uh, throughout the lives of people of color, not just in the criminal justice system, not just in police brutality, but in almost every facet in healthcare, and access to financial services and education. Uh, everyone's got to look at, look at their own company, their own industries, and, and, and the banking industry, for example, you know, redlining was outlawed, outlawed in 1968. Uh, but even today, people of color have much harder time accessing mortgage loans. People of color uh, business owners have much are 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 denied business loan at at three times the rate of of whites. Our businesses, our banks, we've got to look at what what are the structural reasons for this. We've got to be very intentional about this. We've got to intentionally create product programs and products that serve this community, help to build these communities, uh, and help solve this really wealth gap that we see. And that'll go a long way in in in, tearing down these structures, these systems. Uh, that, have, that have allowed for uh, the basic
5: racism that we see today. Darren, I, I want to thank you for joining us. I hope you come on back. Uh, it's a longer conversation, um, and uh, we appreciate you being with us this morning and, and offering your perspective uh, on, on all of it. Um, thank Thanks you so much. very, very much.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, Me Too and Black Lives Matter, two different problems, two different movements. And more than one, two, three different actions to address inequality. Journalist Joanne Littman on CEOs learning from their Me Too missteps to make change for Black Lives.
3: If companies are really serious about this, you gotta look at where is the leakage because it's not the problem of the employees. It's not that your employees aren't cutting it, it's that you've got some sort of structural bias built into your organization
7: You are listening to Squawk Pod.
0: Here is Becky Quick.
3: Welcome
4: back, everybody. Amazon said that it is halting its law enforcement use of its facial recognition software for one year. It says that the one-year moratorium might give Congress time to implement appropriate regulatory rules, and that it will help if requested. Researchers and activists have been sounding the alarm about racism and gender biases that are embedded in the artificial intelligence behind the software. IBM announced this week that it had stopped developing and offering facial recognition software. And um, interesting to see, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet odds on Congress actually coming up with legislation in the next year to deal with this. So it'll be interesting to see what Amazon does if there is no regulation that is developed after that.
5: Yeah, this is, uh, I guess, as we pointed out yesterday, though, it does it it's moot because we're all going to be wearing masks for the next 50 years anyway. So, uh, you know, <laughs> unless you got really detailed, uh, you know, Crows feet around your eyes. I don't. I don't. You know. That's all you got to work. That's all you have to work with. Uh. This is an economic issue, though, for Amazon. Unl- unlike IBM, which had a, this was a very small part of their business. This is actually. I, I mean, on a relative basis, not a huge part of Amazon's business, but it, it's it's significant. It's meaningful. It's also different because Amazon has taken a much more um, not aggressive approach, but has has said that they want to be aligned with the U.S. military. They want to be aligned. With, with the police in the United States in a way that so many other Silicon Valley companies have sort of tried to step away in their own way. So it's interesting to, to see and them take this step.
4: It's probably why, Andrew, they're, they're saying they'll take a year moratorium rather than saying we're not going to do it after that. They're going to say we'll, we'll let right. Congress see what and if they can come up with anything. The other point being, which, again, we made yesterday, too, that that doesn't mean that this is going to stop. It just means the Chinese companies will probably push further and right. further ahead. Yep. And they've already gotten Mm -hmm. a little bit of a lead because they can take so many faces. You know, there's not any privacy over there. They take faces everywhere. They have a massive database to work with. And the, the bigger database you have to work with, the smarter the AI gets when it comes to recognition because it's able to do more and more pattern recognition. Right. Following nationwide protests, many corporate executives have committed, at least vocally, for racial equality. But contributing to systemic change requires more than a press release. CNBC contributor Joanne Lipman writing today that as CEOs implement action plans to disrupt systemic racism in the United States, they can reflect on the Me Too movement for some ideas on what works in affecting change and what doesn't. Let's bring in Joanne Lipman. She is Distinguished Fellow for Journalism at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. She's also a CNBC contributor and Joanne, I know that for several years now you've been traveling and talking to male executives, talking to them about the Me Too movement. And what you've seen happen there shows you a lot of parallels to the corporate response we're seeing right now to the Black Lives Matter movement. What what are you kind of seeing there? And, and how do you think this kind of plays out from here?
3: Yeah, thanks, Becky. So there are a lot of parallels between what's going on now and the Me Too movement and, and also a lot of lessons that we need to learn, because a lot of what happened We're seeing the same playbook. We're seeing lots of corporate statements of support and maybe some donations. We're also seeing some CEOs who are starting to lose their their positions like CrossFit yesterday. I'm sure we're going to see more of that to come. Um, And we're seeing the rise of this white allies movement. And I think this is really relevant because it's sort of an outgrowth of what we saw in the Me Too movement, where suddenly we had male allies. Male allies were people who said, oh, feminism, we never thought that was our cause, but now we want to help. White allies, we're seeing exactly the same thing. The, the issue is if we look at what actually happened with the Me Too movement and what corporate changes happened, we really have not had a lot of movement, I mean, in terms of representation of women, in terms of promotions, in terms of, of, of pay. Um, we're just not seeing the movement. And so if we want to avoid those same missteps now, we've really got to put words into action. And that is what's been missing from the Me Too movement. Something for all of us to learn. Yeah. So, yeah, there's steps that companies can take that, um, that have been effective uh, and that we need to see more of. And by the way, what you just mentioned with Amazon, what you were talking about earlier, is really relevant here, right? We have known for years that, the um, artificial intelligence software, facial recognition software does not recognize black faces accurately. And it's only now that that Amazon is doing something about it. If you look at representation in terms of companies, the tech firms, for example, um, have terrible representation of people of color, less than 4% uh, versus a population, a black population that's like 13%. So uh, but there are things that you can do. One of the first things and the easiest that, you know, you really got to trust your data and look at your data. and And that means quantifying, first of all, promotion rates. Look at your promotion gap. So companies have gotten so much better than they used to be in terms of um, of hiring at the entry level, uh, diverse candidates. But then if you look at every level going up, it becomes less and less diverse, more white, more male. And if companies are really serious about this, you gotta look at where's the leakage because it's not the problem of the employees. It's not that your employees aren't cutting it. It's that you've got some sort of structural bias built into your organization and you can pinpoint it there. And similarly, we've seen the same thing with wage gap analyses, which can be very helpful.
4: Joanne, I I saw a a strain on Twitter, a thread that had kind of run through just about, let's say, in journalism. Part of the reason that you you don't see more diversity in journalism is because for a very long time, um, all of these newsrooms relied on unpaid internships, and that just cuts off a lot of people who have access to this. That seems to me like a pretty uh, significant thing that would be considered.
3: And, and Becky, you're right. And not only that, it actually starts even before the internship. It starts in college. A lot of college newspapers is considered an extracurricular activity. Those students are blocked out. Students on financial aid, who disproportionately minority students, are actually cannot work on their student newspapers if the student newspapers don't provide a stipend because they have to have a job uh, to go with their student aid. So, the more colleges we see are now starting to pay. Then you go into the internship phase, you, the internship phase, um, if you're not unpaid internships. Um, and by the way, also, you know, the fact that in journalism in particular, those those entry level jobs are very poorly paid. So that's another issue um, to deal with. Uh, but there's another issue that I think is really important, which is who's doing the interviewing, who's making the decisions, who are the decision makers about who's hiring and also who's getting promoted, like who is making those decisions. There's a in football, Becky, I know you know this, there's the Rooney rule um, that uh, if you're hiring a coach, you've got to include a diverse slate of candidates. Every company should have a Rooney rule for their candidates, but they also need a similar Rooney rule. For their interviewers, because if you've got a um, if your interviewers, your people who make the decisions are largely white men and you've got a diverse slate of candidates, you're not going to get the optimal result. And so you want to have yep. that ability to understand, you know, to have people who are, who are making those decisions who are have diverse points of view. Joanne, thank you. We are out of time. Thank you very much. It's great to see you, Joanne. And yes, if you want to see a full to see article, you. you can go to
4: Avoiding Me Too's, missteps. You can go to cnbc.com.
0: That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC with comments or
7: questions, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow.